You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. In Acts chapter 2, it clearly teaches that every single believer in Jesus, male and female, without exception, received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. There are not some who got the Spirit and some who didn't. All believers get the Spirit. And now, today, every time someone is converted to Christ, he or she immediately receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. Whether you feel something or not, the Holy Spirit enters into your life and becomes an abiding possession. He will never, ever leave you. Have you ever been to a grand opening before? Usually they have all kinds of fun things for the whole family. Food, games, and prizes for everyone. There might be a line to wait, but other than that, everyone gets something. All you have to do is show up. In today's message, Pastor Tom teaches us that for everyone that walks through the door of salvation, there is a prize they'll receive. The prize is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given by God to all who put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of Acts chapter 2 as he continues his message, Yes, I am trying to convert you. We are in lesson number five, message number five, back to Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Please follow along again with me as I read our inspired text. Acts 2, 37 to 41. Now, when they, that giant crowd there that had been gathered to hear Peter's sermon, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you, Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received Peter's word were baptized And that day, they were added about 3,000 souls. We've been learning the components of biblical conversion from this historic text. Component number one we already covered was the need for gospel preaching, which Peter provided. Component number two was then the conviction of sins, that the preaching was not just interesting or informed them, but they were brought to the point, sort of the end of their rope, the end of themselves, where they realized before God they have no chance. And that's where everybody needs to be brought, that apart from Jesus Christ, you have no chance with God. Component number three is genuine repentance, that you don't just acknowledge something is true, but you realize there's something wrong with your life and you turn from that wrong lifestyle from that independence from God and you turn in faith to Jesus Christ and confess him as your new king, your Lord, your master. You're ready to follow him. It's a radical change in your heart. If you haven't gone through a radical change, you're not a converted person. You have to follow Christ and that's a radical thing. Component number four of conversion also review is the sign of water baptism. While water doesn't convert anyone, it doesn't add to your conversion, it is a great symbol of conversion and the washing away of all sins. Component number five of conversion is the forgiveness of sins. There in the middle of verse 38, you see that. We learned last time God hates sin, and since he hates sin, he never treats sin lightly. Everyone either gets forgiveness or they get judgment. No one escapes sin. Everyone needs forgiveness. They need a lot of forgiveness from God. There's a mountain of debt that they have before God, that we have before God. We owe God because of a life of sin. 
And Jesus Christ can pay that with his blood and has paid that with his blood. But you have to come to faith in Christ to receive that payment. Scripture says in Psalm 32 and verse 1, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. It's a great blessing to be forgiven. There's no blessing for those that are not forgiven. And forgiveness is not automatic. You must come in repentant faith. Component number six, we started and began this last time. Component number six of conversion is that you get another benefit when you're converted, and that is you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not the gifts, plural, of the Holy Spirit, but the gift. The Holy Spirit himself is a gift to us as believers in the new covenant. Peter says there, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to believers in this age, the new covenant age. He is our treasure. He is our possession now. We don't wait to get him. We have him now. In Acts chapter 2, it clearly teaches that every single believer in Jesus, male and female, without exception, received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. There were not some who got the Spirit and some who didn't. All believers get the Spirit. And now, today, Every time someone is converted to Christ, he or she immediately receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. Whether you feel something or not, the Holy Spirit enters into your life and becomes an abiding possession. He will never, ever leave you. He also communicates the very presence of Jesus Christ to you. He is the member of the Trinity, and he communicates the presence of God the Father and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to you, so that Christ himself comes to live inside of your life. He is our greatest treasure. We sing songs about that. That is where we left off last time. This gift, Peter trumpeted out there, is not only for you, he told those Jewish adults there, but notice, for your children and for all who are far off. The you, when he says this is for you, refers to the Jews. Why? Because they were all Jews there. We're still in Jerusalem. This is an entirely Jewish context. The coming of the Spirit was a national promise to the Jewish people. It was a promise that God made to the ethnic Jews, to the Jewish nation. The Old Testament context is very clear about that. It can't mean something other than what it meant in the Old Testament context. God's not in the business of changing the promises of God. The New Testament adds detail that the Old Testament did not have, but it never changes the promises given in the Old Testament. It was a promise that God had made to the nation of Israel as part of the new covenant, a better covenant he would make with them, a better covenant than the old covenant that they got at Mount Sinai mediated through Moses. One place in the Old Testament where that promise was given to the Jews is Joel chapter 2. At a time when God would restore all of the fortunes of Jerusalem and Judah after the time of the great tribulation, according to Joel 3, there would be the coming of the Spirit. It was for the Jews. It was for the Jews' children. Everyone that God himself would call to himself. Peter does not mean here that little children or infants received the Holy Spirit in water baptism. Again, some try to use this as a proof text for infant baptism or even baptismal regeneration that the operation of baptism actually causes somebody to be born again. That is not true. Clearly, that is reading more into the words that Peter intended in this context. The immediate context makes Peter's meaning clear. 
Peter means that when they grow old enough to respond to the call of God, have the conviction of their sins as was going on that day, and repent, become believers in Jesus, they too are promised the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-generation promise. It's also for the children, the grandchildren, and every generation that will come to faith. The point is, this is a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful promise, a wonderful covenant. It's not going to happen just once. It's an enduring promise. It is a way of telling all of those Jews that these stipulations of the new covenant are ongoing. The new covenant will not have an end as the old covenant did. The new covenant will be a perpetual covenant. The new covenant will not only be perpetual, the new covenant will be widespread. Notice he says, even to those who are far off, they also will get the Holy Spirit. In other words, this pouring out of the Holy Spirit that these Jews had witnessed with the speaking of the languages was the beginning of something new and something big. It was something that was going to spread across the world. It was something that was going to last perpetually. It was a major event. Pentecost was a world-altering event. We talked about this before in other sermon series that we talk big about Good Friday and the death of Jesus, and so we should. And we talk big about Easter and the resurrection of Jesus, and we should. That's right. But so many Christian preachers and Christians themselves forget that the ascension of the Lord Jesus was just as an important event when he sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and the coming of the Spirit was meant to be a world-altering event, and indeed it was. Now, commentators do debate whether that phrase that Peter used there, far off, refers to the Gentiles, who are not in this context, or to the Jews that were spread all across the world in those days, outside of the land of Israel, in what was called the Diaspora. You may remember the the tribes of Israel were taken off of their land in the Old Testament with disobedience, and they were spread in the nations. Well, they kept spreading everywhere. It's synagogues all over the world in that day. And there's even proof of that with all the digs that are going on in archaeology. But they were far spread. They had various enclaves and communities that had developed. And where they went, they developed a lot of prosperity, and God still was with them. Many of them never came back to the land. They remained in the diaspora. And many of the people here in Pentecost were from that diaspora. They spoke in all these different languages that were listed earlier in chapter 2. We noted how that was from northern Africa and from Europe and from Asia and even far over in Asia, different places, the Arabian Peninsula and all of those different areas that is far off from Israel. At this early stage of the church, it does not appear that Peter fully understood that this new covenant would spread beyond the Jewish people to the Gentiles. In fact, Peter was so resistant to it, not just in Acts 2, but by the time we get to Acts 10 and Acts 11, Peter's still kind of, kind of a numbskull. And it takes this vision that he gets in Acts chapter 10 and 11 that opens up all of these unclean animals and he's told Peter, arise, kill and eat. And he says, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. But God was trying to teach him a lesson, not just that now he was allowed to eat bacon, but that the Gentiles who were considered unclean by the Jews were now no longer unclean. They could come into the kingdom. He didn't get that until Acts 10 and 11. So it's doubtful that here in Acts 2, Peter means the promise is for the Gentiles. It's more likely he means that the promise is for the Jews that are scattered abroad. And again, the foreign languages set that context there. 
many, many scattered Israelites, they too would receive this promise. It was not just something that would happen in Jerusalem. It's something that would spread. It was something that would cover all over the world. Now, as we get to trek through the book of Acts, we're going to see all of this, that the word of God does spread. At first, it spreads from synagogue to synagogue. It comes out from Jerusalem and it goes into Judea and Samaria. And it's very localized, but it's spreading. And then it goes and it continues. It gets to Antioch. And then you begin to see the mission that opens up to the Gentiles. But at first, it's going from synagogue to synagogue. Even the apostle Paul, who was an apostle to the Gentiles, always made it his practice when he went into town. If there was a synagogue to preach the gospel first to the Jews, it was their national promise. And Peter was saying that even here. All of these conversions, of course, would be guided by the sovereign hand of God. The Jews, some of them would accept the gospel. Really, there were tens of thousands of Jewish people that embraced the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But over time, the Jews hardened their hearts and the sovereign hand of God moved the gospel out to the other nations. And they rejoiced in the reception of that. God's sovereign hand guides conversions. The evangelist really can't make anybody convert. It takes God to work on hearts. Please notice that even here in this fabulous text on Christian conversion, where the responsibility of, of repenting is put on the people, we have a short note, but an important note of the work of God kind of behind the scenes. All of the conversions, all of the repentance would be in response to, notice, God's call. God's call. Look at the end of verse 39. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Who are the ones that are going to respond? Who are the ones that are going to believe? The answer, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. All that the Lord our God calls are going to get converted and get the gift of the Spirit. Do you see that? Of course, the title, the Lord, is the covenant name for God, as he is in relation to the nation of Israel, Yahweh, the name that refers to the being verb in Hebrew. He is who he is. He is the self-existent one. That's the aseity of God that no one created or caused God. He always has been and he always will be. He's the first cause of all other causes. He never was born. He never started. He just is. Remember what he said to Moses? I am who I am. That's the name. The Lord, our God. God is the more general name, Elohim. It means the God of Israel is the true God, and that God will call people to himself. He is Lord of all the earth. That God, our Lord, will be in charge sovereignly of how all of this conversion happens as it spreads across the globe and people get saved. By the way, that is God's prerogative, is it not? To have problems with the sovereignty of God and salvation is to have problems with a God who's sovereign. God can't be sovereign without being sovereign. Either he's sovereign or he's not sovereign. If he's sovereign, he's sovereign in everything. And that includes the salvation of people. No one can stay God's hand and say, what are you doing? He doesn't answer to anybody. Some he will call and they will come. I want to make a distinction for you in your theology just to help you out a little bit here. In the general sense, all people who hear an evangelist preach are called by God to come. Jesus himself was an evangelist, and he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, he proclaimed this, Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Was that a genuine call for people to come who are weary with life and weary with the rule, the pharisaical rules that have been put on them in Israel? And the answer is yes. It was wide open. His arms were wide open to any come. 
The physical ear of people would hear that call of God to salvation. Turn from your sins. That entire massive crowd that was there with Peter, they heard it as well. Turn away from your sins. A genuine invitation to any and all. Every person, come if you want. Billy Graham would do that in his crusades. There would be tens of thousands gathered before him and he would give the invitation to everybody. Come if you want. Come forward publicly. He would make them do that. That's an outward call. That's a call that the physical ear hears. Any sinner can comprehend the message in that sense. Oh, there's that guy up front and he's telling me I'm bad and that I need to come forward and believe in Jesus Christ. And they can hear that and they can understand that at least at one level. And that call goes out to everybody eventually, hopefully. You know, if we get the word out to all the nations, that goes to everybody. But because a natural and an unsaved man doesn't have anything in his mind or in his will that helps him to believe, as 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 says, a natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. They don't even make any sense to them. He doesn't have an ability to appraise its value, it says there. And because of that, he never responds. An unsaved person never responds to the call of God. He doesn't want to. He has other ideas about what's right and wrong. He doesn't get it. He's called blind. He's called dead in Scripture. So along with that outward call of the evangelist, God calls in a more deeper and a more compelling manner some, not all. We call that the inner call. The inner call penetrates, takes that outward call and makes it just go in deeper to penetrate within a person and draw them to the faith and to the repentance that they would not be able to produce themselves. In fact, the reason they are able to convert is that God gave them a more compelling inward call, come to faith and repentance. This little note by Peter briefly acknowledges the divine role in conversion, the divine role in salvation. There will be many other times throughout the book of Acts as the preachers are putting the responsibility on the people. You must believe. You must repent of your sins. We get the little note behind the scenes, behind the curtain, so to say, here is what God is doing. And what God is doing is most important. The inspired writer gives us a little brief glimpse about the work of God. I'll just give you an example. In Acts 13 and verse 48, it teaches that when the Gentiles heard Paul's evangelistic sermon, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And then it says this, as many as had been appointed, had been in past tense, had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Who are those that responded to the outward call? And the answer is those who had already been appointed to gain eternal life. They are the ones who believe. God obviously does the appointing to eternal life. That is what resulted in some believing the gospel and some getting converted. The ones that God appoints to eternal life are the ones who get that inward divine summons or call to the gospel. The internal call of God is explained by the British preacher Charles Spurgeon, in 1892, he preached this. The general call goes out to all the world by virtue of Christ's universal mediatorship. Since he is the mediator of all flesh, God wills that the proclamation of mercy be published universally. Although this general call is sincere, the person dead in sins and corrupted with lust is unwilling and incapable of responding to the gospel invitation. To such an individual, sovereign grace cries out through the word, applied by the spirit, come forth. And so the person receives new spiritual life. 
The great physical illustration of that is Jesus standing in front of the tomb of Lazarus and speaking to a dead man, dead for four days, brain dead, gone, lying in a tomb. And he has to specify who he's speaking to because his divine power is so great. And he simply said, Lazarus, come forth. Well, if you or I stood in front of a tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth, we would be able to give an outward call to a dead man, but it would never penetrate inside to where he is. That's what has to happen in a spiritual sense. The voice of God has to penetrate the spiritually dead people and summon them forth or they'll never respond. In Matthew twenty-two fourteen, Jesus used slightly different language to indicate this twofold calling, this twofold work of God. He said, many are called, but few are what? Chosen. You know it. Many are invited into the kingdom of heaven. Many are preached at. Many have the gospel proclaimed to them. Many hear with their outer ear that invitation to come to Christ. But not all of them come. In fact, it seems most don't. Only a few were chosen by God. Only a few are given the ability inwardly to respond to the call to overcome their stubbornness and their evil and their wickedness. God holds them accountable for that wickedness. But with some who don't deserve an inward call, he gives it anyways. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not a believer in Jesus Christ because you had more insight than the person next to you. You are a believer in Jesus Christ because God had pity and mercy on you. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 30, it makes it very clear that there's an inward call of God. Because it says, everybody that God predestines, he also calls. And everybody he calls gets justified. What does that mean? Declared innocent and saved. And it even goes on, everybody that gets saved gets glorified. All the way to glory. Preserved in their salvation. That proves there is an effective inward call. For everyone that is called gets saved. That can't be the outward call. We know most people turn away from that. The internal call, the ones the Lord our God calls to himself is an irresistible divine summons upon stubborn human hearts where he overcomes their blindness. Without the inward call, the outward call would just thump off hard hearts. But with the inward call, the human soul always comes, always joyfully comes, not against their will, but their will now sees that's what they were talking about. Jesus is so amazing. They just come naturally and they, they love Christ. Another illustration of this in the book of Acts is Lydia's dear conversion from a Jewish worshiper of God in an Old Testament sense to be a believer in Jesus as Messiah. It records in Acts chapter 16 and verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening. That is listening to Paul preach the gospel. And it says, the Lord, listen, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the thing spoken by Paul. Do you see that? The Lord opens the heart. Then the person responds. The flower of faith comes from that bud of regeneration. God had to do the work so she could respond to the gospel. And God did, and then she did. Just as light could do nothing but come into existence when God spoke the words, let there be light. Do you think after God Almighty said, let there be light, there would still just be darkness? Light didn't have a choice in one sense. There was going to be light as soon as God said, let there be light. And when God 
says to a soul, let there be life, there's going to be life as well. This is what Peter meant in his first epistle, 1 Peter 2, 9, when he said to believers, God called you. God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That call was really a divine summons with the authority and the power of Almighty God. Make no mistake about it. Your conversion and my conversion only could happen if he gave us a divine summons. We know that God's heart is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why it's so important for us as believers to continue to spread the gospel. However, as we learn today from Pastor Tom, the work of salvation in the life of a person isn't just an earthly human thing. The work of salvation must come from God. True conversion is a divine act that God must do in a person's life. We're so glad you joined us today on Discover Hope. We'd like to meet you. So if you're in the area, come visit us at Hope Bible Church. Our Sunday mornings include Bible classes at 9.30 a.m., followed by a worship service at 11 a.m. You can find out more at hopebible.org or give us a call at 443-200-HOPE. That's 443-200-HOPE. We'd also like to invite you to join us in bringing the kingdom of God and the joy of salvation to our listeners by becoming a financial partner of Discover Hope. Find out more under the Giving tab at hopebible.org. We've been learning a lot about conversion and its different components. The first six we've learned were the gospel message, conviction of sins, genuine repentance, the sign of water baptism, the forgiveness of sins, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Join us next time on Discover Hope as Pastor Tom teaches us about the seventh and final component in our series, leaving the world and joining the people of God in the church. To listen again to today's message in the book of Acts, visit hopebiblechurch.org and look under the sermons tab. Pastor Tom will return soon with another in-depth study of God's Word. So join us again right here on Discover Hope.